0: Welcome to Scripture Central. We're thrilled to have you here. Just a quick note, this video is a revamped edition of this video series from four years ago. The content, however, is as relevant and insightful as ever. We also invite you to explore our extensive collection of resources and programs designed to enhance your study of the Scriptures. You can do this by visiting scripturecentral.org. Now, let's dive into the lesson. This is an amazing section of, of the Book of Mormon where... You, you get Nephi sharing his vision. So this, this vision that we could call a, a panoptic vision, a vision of all, he sees, he sees so many things and we only get a little flavor, a little sampling of the, of the elements that he, ha, that he has shown. Before we dive into the actual vision, we want to begin with what brought on the vision. So join us in verse 1 of chapter 11 and notice the order of the verbs here. What did Nephi do? Okay, here we go. For it came to pass after – that's a significant word – it wasn't the beginning or during, it was after I had desired to know. The things that my father had seen. It begins with a desire. Brothers and sisters, so many of you and us end up beating ourselves up because we're not perfect and we don't do things exactly the way they need to be done. I love the fact that the scriptures uh, emphasize the desires of our hearts and the desires of, of our, our covenant relationship with God. We, we desire, we want to be better, we want to be good. I love the word that uh, appears multiple places, for instance, in the Temple Recommend interview. Do you strive? I love that word because to me it denotes this – it's what I want, it's what I'm seeking for, am I perfect at it? No. But am I working at it? Yes. So after I had desired to know the things that my father had seen and believing that the Lord was able to make them known unto me." So it's not just this blind desire thinking, man, I sure wish that he would He would show me some things, but he, he's not capable or I'm not capable of receiving them. No. He has faith. I believe that God is able to make them known, not just make them known unto people in general or make them known unto my father who happens to be a prophet, Lehi in this case, notice that the Lord was able to make them known unto me. Brothers and sisters, I love that little word, me, because I know we're reading Nephi's words, but in likening all scriptures unto us, you could circle the me and put in the margin your name because you've got to believe that God is able to make all things that are, that are uh, needful known unto you in your own language and after your own understanding. Notice step three, as I sat pondering. Now, if I were to ask what are the order of the operations of the verbs here, you would say desire, believing, and most would jump quickly to pondering. But you'll notice there's a little helper verb in here, as I sat pondering, and he qualifies, he gives a a significant qualifier to what kind of pondering it is, as I sat pondering in mine heart. Normally, you and I in our Western modern culture would, would refer to the mind as the place where we ponder, where we think deeply, You'll notice he says, as I sat pondering in mine heart. This is pondering that has sunk deep into his soul. It's soul-stirring feeling and and thoughts and emotions that are that are they have his full attention. Now, why am I making a big deal of this? Can you see the difference in in English? It would have made if he said, I desired to know the things that my father had seen, and believing that the Lord was able to make them known unto me, and as I was pondering them, would feel very different than as I sat pondering them. That little simple verb does an awful lot to that bigger verb. Why? Because it's as if Nephi is saying, look, I wasn't working in the fields, I wasn't working with the flocks, I wasn't sitting around after dinner letting my mind wander and ponder while everybody's having a conversation, I wasn't falling asleep or waking up. He says, as I sat pondering, it's as if everything else has taken a back seat, pushed to the to the periphery, and he is now sitting, putting his full energy, effort, and attention on pondering the things that Dad shared with us from his dream. I'm pondering them so deeply, it it ends up in my heart, it's moving me. Now what what difference does that make for us? What are many of you doing right now? Many of you are probably sitting and many of you are probably thinking deeply about words of prophets, words of the scriptures. You've set aside time, you've carved out some space in your calendar for the day to devote some full energy and attention to pondering the words of prophets. In Nephi's case, it was the words of his living prophet, it happened to be his father, Lehi, that he's pondering on those, those words. But brothers and sisters, when you set aside time, to ponder words of prophets both living and in the past, revelation flows, revelation comes and it comes in a variety of ways for a variety of different people. Uh, But this pattern that Nephi just showed you in verse 1 is alive and well. I think the reason you're, you're spending time studying the Book of Mormon right now, is because you really want to know and I think that you're doing that because you actually believe God can teach you things and he can help you move forward on the covenant path and you're spending time not doing other things, you're actually devoting time to pondering those words which will lead to revelation, probably not a panoptic vision like Nephi had but he will give you revelation. Look at the conclusion to chapter 1 verse 1 – or sorry, chapter 11 verse 1, I was caught away in the Spirit of the Lord, yea, into an exceedingly high mountain which I never had before seen and upon which I never had before set my foot. So he sees things and he's going to experience things that he's never ever encountered before. Now let me make this really simple. When I was younger, when I was a teenager, I read that verse and I thought, yeah, I want that too. And I prayed and I prayed and I prayed and I prayed with faith and I fasted. I wanted to see Nephi's dream or Nephi's vision or have Lehi's dream. I wanted to see these things too. And the answer that came to me over and over and over again was, Tyler, read, read the Book of Mormon." It's here. I'll show these things to you through their words and you're going to experience them in a different way than Nephi and Lehi experienced them, but it's going to be just as revelatory for you as it was for them in their position. Now what does that mean for you and for me now moving forward? Brothers and sisters, you don't have to create these these super spiritual events for yourself or for your family home evening or your your gospel doctrine class, If, if you are doing your best, you're going to the Lord, you're desiring to know and you gather the people around you, whether it's your family or class members or a seminary class, whatever roles you may fill and you devote time to set aside to actually ponder the words of prophets, seers and revelators the promise is sure. You're going to be taken places spiritually that will open up uh, the eternities to you in, in a manner that is, that is uh, helpful and instructive for your next phase and the people around you for their next phase of life. And it doesn't have to be this huge heavens open, angels speaking, choirs singing, light shining kind of an experience. Uh, It can be a very quiet moment in a front room with a single person or with a small family or with uh, an aged couple as they study together or with a whole class uh, studying the scriptures over the internet together. Uh, It can be in any of these forms. The Holy Ghost is not bound by time or space or any of these things. So I wanted to point that out, that leading in here. this is, this is within our, our reach to be able to apply these things that are happening here. So
1: we too actually can have visionary experiences, but perhaps in a different way than Nephi. And let me actually just point this out. The word vision is related to the word wise. You might be able to see how similar those words are, and wisdom. So, when you gain wisdom from God, you're having a vision. In fact, our word video, you're watching a video right now, actually comes from the same word as vision. And even the word evidence, you can even see in the word evidence the word for video. So, right now you're watching a video, you're kind of having a vision, we hope that you become wise, as you study with us and together we learn from the scriptures, it gives us the vision of seeing and understanding more from God. So when you think about visions, don't just limit yourself to the, these, these grand experiences that Nephi had, but say, let me take the totality of what visions are possible and that I can become wise and have um, – by learning from the word of God and have evidence of God's love by seeing his love in my life. Now I want to talk about that word love a bit. The word desire is really important here. It turns out that the Egyptian word for desire, and remember that the Book of Mormon writers remind us that they're using Hebrew language, um, Egyptian language to write, The uh, the Egyptian word for desire is actually the name Nephi. So imagine how much joy Nephi had in recounting this experience he had about the desires he had. He got to make use of the meaning of his own name to describe his righteous desires. And you might go through this vision and circle all the points where the word desire shows up, or even Nephi, and know that those are interchangeable. But it's even better because Nephi, as an Egyptian word, can be translated as desirable, beautiful, lovely or good? So I want you to think about those words and also look for those in the vision and you might discover that Nephi talks about the love of God. He talks about how beautiful the fruit is, that it's goodly. And all these things all are wrapped up in the meaning of Nephi's name. So not only did he have this great vision, he got to express so many of the key concepts of the vision if, uh, through the meaning of his name. So these are key concepts you can be looking for in this vision. It all comes really back to God, that God is desirable, God is beautiful, he is lovely, he is good, and that is expressed through his atonement. And one more is the word Mary. Now Mary is mentioned in this vision, but not by name. And it turns out, also in Egyptian, the word Mary means love. So again, that theme of love is just, just packed into this vision. and just reminds us that the purpose of the Book of Mormon is God's love endures forever, and this vision expresses that very powerfully.
0: So here's Nephi. He's standing on an exceedingly high mountain, and the Spirit uh, of the Lord came to him and asked the question in verse 2, what desirest thou? Uh, isn't it interesting that, that the Savior, and in this case, the Spirit of the Lord, seems to like this pattern of asking questions, the answer to which God already knows better than, than you know? but he asks the question anyway, to activate agency, there's something powerful about learners verbalizing and participating in this learning process. So he asks him that question, what desires thou? And he says, well, I I desire to behold the things which my father saw. You'll notice early on Nephi just says, I want to see what dad saw. So the Spirit of the Lord asks him, well, do you believe all the words of, of your father? And he responds, yes, I, I believe all of them, at which point the Spirit cried with a loud voice, Hosanna to the Lord. And then part way down through verse 6 he says, Blessed art thou Nephi, because thou believest in the Son of the Most High God, wherefore thou shalt behold the things which thou hast desired. Now things get very interesting in verse 7 because he says, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you some things, and he gives him a, a pre-vision uh, a prelude, if you will, to the vision. Behold, this thing shall be given unto thee for a sign. So he he gets us thinking symbolically for a minute. I'm gonna show you this thing for a sign. So there it's a type. We're, we're, we're in a symbolic metaphorical realm, is, is what he's preparing Nephi's mind for here. That after thou hast beheld the tree which bore the fruit which thy father tasted." So he says, you've asked to see the tree that your father saw in his dream, I'm going to show that tree to you as a sign. And then after you've seen the tree, then I'm going to show you something else. He says, you'll also behold a man descending out of heaven, and him shall you witness. So there's a man descending out of heaven. You're going to see a tree, then you're going to see a man. And notice he goes on to say, and after you have witnessed him, you shall bear record that it is the Son of God. This is interesting because the word it, you could circle that and what is the antecedent? Is the it this or is the it that? Because in English you could make an argument for either one. But I love the fact that we've already been put in a symbolic realm by the Spirit of the Lord, that I think what he's saying to Nephi is, I'm going to show you the tree of life that your father told you about in his dream, and then I'm going to show you a man descending out of heaven, and you're going to bear witness that it is the Son of God. I think he might be trying to say to us, it's the same thing. The man is symbolically represented by the sign of the tree. Look at verse 8, and it came to pass that the Spirit said unto me, look. Now, as you're this – is, this is just a simple overview for Nephi's vision as, as we have uh, the chapters recorded in the Book of Mormon. In chapter 11, you're going to get eight looks. In chapter 12, you're going to get two. In chapter 13, you're only going to get one and in chapter 14 you're going to get two. You could could see these as if they were scene changes. So it's as if the Lord is saying, okay, you've been looking at this screen, this vision, this part of the unfolding story, now look. I want you to look over here, look at this new story, now look, look, look. So you're seeing that there's this Huge set, more than more than all the other three chapters combined in chapter eleven. This is the chapter that has all of the scenes depicting Christ, his coming, his life, his miracles, his infinite atonement, and and his death on the cross. It's all contained in chapter eleven. So notice the first look. And I looked and beheld a tree, and it was like unto the tree which my father had seen." And now watch carefully at the adjectives, the descriptor words for the tree. "...the beauty thereof was far beyond, yea, exceeding of all beauty, and the whiteness thereof did exceed the whiteness of the driven snow." Side note, this won't get any of you into heaven, it's just for fun but right there in that verse is the only time in the entire Book of Mormon where you get any reference to what we would classify as cold, wintry uh, conditions – snow. That's it. The whiteness of the driven snow. It's the only place in the entire Book of Mormon. Uh, You never get frost or ice or blankets or having to light a fire because we're shivering cold. No no winter storms mentioned ever in the Book of Mormon, for what it's worth.
1: And uh, I spent a semester at the BYU Jerusalem Center uh, many years ago, and I remember this passage as a kid, like, man, there's no snow in the Middle East. And I remember I was there through December, and I remember one morning waking up and there was like basically this massive snowstorm in Jerusalem. I just remember being shocked, like, I'm from Minnesota, we we know snow. And I guess I just never imagined that there was like snow in a place like this, and there it was, it was like a a total whiteout. I'm like, oh, Nephi grew up in Jerusalem.
0: Of course he's going to know about snow. It's it's a great reference. Beautiful. Okay, so here you go. So it is exceedingly beautiful. So its beauty uh, exceeded all beauty, and its whiteness was so exquisite that uh, it did exceed the whiteness of the driven snow, which is the whitest thing, the brightest thing Nephi could have – could have known about is the sun shining on, on freshly fallen snow and just that bright white. But as he's talking about the tree and the fruit thereof, he's saying it's it's more beautiful than anything you've ever seen and it's whiter than anything you can ever imagine. Hmm, that's interesting. Hold that thought, we'll come back to it. So. Do any of you see what has, has happened here? The Spirit of the Lord asked him, what do, you want to what do you want, Nephi? I want to see the tree which my father saw. Well, check, that's done. Or are we finished? It came to pass that after I had seen the tree, I said unto the Spirit, I behold, thou hast shown unto me the tree which is precious above all. So now he adds the word precious to describe it. And verse 10, he said unto me, what desirest thou? I said unto him, to know the interpretation thereof. So before it was just, I want to see it. Now that he's seen it, are you noticing this line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little progression of revelation, that sometimes we kneel down and we ask for our daily bread and we get it but then we realize we actually want more in, in different realms, and that's what's happening here. And so he's, he describes here that the Spirit of the Lord is speaking to him like a man, speaketh to another, and then in verse 12 you get your second scene change. So scene one is, see the tree. Scene two, it came to pass that he said unto me, look, look, and I looked as if to look upon him, and I saw him not, for he had gone from before my presence. And it came to pass that I looked, and I beheld the great city of Jerusalem, and also other cities, and I beheld the city of Nazareth. And in the city of Nazareth, I beheld a virgin, and she was exceedingly fair and white. Huh. Now, keep in mind, here we are Sometime around 600 BC, Nephi's on an exceedingly high mountain upon which he's never before set foot. The Spirit of the Lord's showing him these visions, these different scenes, and he sees in in this second vision the city of Jerusalem, and then he sees the city of Nazareth, and then inside of the city of Nazareth he sees a virgin. He sees Mary, the the mother of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, there is an attribute of God that is for the human mind. I'll just speak for myself instead of for, for all of humanity. I'll speak for, for little old Tyler Griffin. For me, one of the hardest attributes and perfections of God for for my, my finite mind to, to understand is God's omnipresence, the fact that he's not bound by time, that he doesn't wear wristwatches like we do and have Gregorian calendars on his, on his walls, that he lives in what some have, have described as an eternal now, that he's not, he's not dwelling in time the same that, that we do. So, here's a prophet on a mountain peak in six, near 600 B.C., and he's seeing Jerusalem and Nazareth and Mary, I don't think Nephi's looking at heavenly holograms presents our best guess as to what Jerusalem and Nazareth and Mary might look like 600 years from now. I think what Nephi is looking at is Jerusalem and Nazareth and Mary 600 years down the corridor of time. And that, that is so hard for our minds to wrap around because then it brings up all these philosophical questions of, well, wait, how can I have agency if God already sees end from the beginning? Um, Those are good questions, and I don't have great answers for them other than I know that I have full agency, and based on scriptures and and some of the words of the Prophet Joseph Smith, I know that there's nothing that's going to happen down the road in the future that is going to catch God by surprise or catch him off guard because he didn't quite – put all of the the predictive statistics together quite right, and something happens way down the road in the future that doesn't turn out the way he anticipated. God is not bound by time. He doesn't have those same uh, chronological blinders that you and I have. So notice his description of Mary in verse 13, and it came to pass that I saw the heavens open, and an angel came down and stood before me, and he said unto me, Nephi, what beholdest thou? So now the angel who is going to be his tutor for the rest of these chapters, his his mentor, his teacher, his guide, asks him this question, what what are you seeing? what do you what did you behold? I said unto him, a virgin, most beautiful and fair, above all other virgins.
1: So let's put
0: that word fair
1: on the board. I forgot to mention, that one of the Egyptian meanings of the word Nephi is fair. So when the names are the lesson, Nephi's name, the lesson he's trying to teach is that God's goodness is lovely, desirable, beautiful, and fair, and even the mother of Jesus exemplifies these qualities which are actually bound up in the meaning of Nephi's name. I just think it must have been a huge delight for Nephi be able to talk about this vision and to use the meaning of his name over and over again to talk about Mary and to talk about Jesus and to talk about the atonement, I just find that fascinating.
0: So keep in mind, we have the tree that was described with these adjectives and now we have his mother described using the same adjectives, and back to the sign of the tree being a type or a shadow for Christ himself. Beautiful Savior, this shining, resplendent, uh, glory-filled Savior, and everything about him is precious and fair. Now let's talk for a minute about these struggles that we sometimes face in mortality. in in a social or cultural context um, regarding things such as race. Notice the description of Mary. She was exceedingly fair and white. I don't think he's referring to her skin pigmentation here. I think that when prophets are looking in a seership, in a prophetic sort of a way, that they're looking through heaven's eyes more than through mortal eyes at Mary and and at the tree and at Christ himself. So for me, all of these these words have very little to do with race and have everything to do with purity regarding the spirit and the soul and the eternal identity of, of both Mary and of Jesus Christ symbolized by this tree. So for me, I love the fact that all of these three elements, the tree, the Savior, and his mother are all getting the same descriptive words because it, it, that, that sim- symbolic connection between them to me is, is beautiful. Now notice verse 16, he said unto me, knowest thou the condescension of God? Now most of us, if we were asked that same question, would say, "Um, the what? But look at what Nephi says. I said unto him, I know that he loveth his children, nevertheless I do not know the meaning of all things. Did you see what Nephi just did? He just taught you a pattern of what to do when you're asked questions that you don't know the answer to. Uh, from from meaningful in, in meaningful conversations, not in not in uh, arguments or contentious Bible bash sorts of conversations. I need to clarify that. You'll notice, instead of focusing on what he didn't know, he went back to what he does know. I, I know that he loveth all of his children, nevertheless, I do not know the meaning of all things," is a, is a nice way to say, I have no idea about the condescension of God, but I do know that he loveth all of his children. There's something beautiful about that, about acknowledging that I, I don't know that, but I do know this. That's a really beautiful pattern. Now, I want to show you something that I think is beautiful in, in how the Book of Mormon is laid out here. You'll notice in verse 18 it says, he said unto me, behold, the virgin whom thou seest is the mother of the Son of God after the manner of the flesh. In the 1830 edition, in the original and printer's manuscripts of the Book of Mormon, when you come to that section, what you read is it says this, behold, the virgin whom thou seest is the mother of God after the manner of the flesh. And it was in the uh, 1837 edition where Joseph Smith changed it from mother of God to mother of the Son of God. Why? Because there were so many people who were confused by that. They were saying, wait, Mary's the mother of God, so you, you do believe in the Trinity. And so Joseph made this adjustment to mother of the Son of God not because it wasn't correct in its original edition, but to give what you would call prophetic uh, insight or prophetic commentary on what the intent of that original author was, that prophetic author. Joseph knew what Nephi meant, Nephi knows what he means, and he has no problem at all calling Mary the mother of God because who is the Messiah? Who is the Christ to Nephi? He is God, the God of the Old Testament. They have no problem referring to him as God. Uh, for, for those of you who want further clarification on that, if you go to Jacob chapter 4 really quickly, look at this. In fact, that would be a great cross-reference to verse 18, 1 Nephi eleven eighteen. Cross-reference it with Jacob 4, verse 5. Listen to this. This is uh, Nephi's brother Jacob speaking. Behold, they, speaking of all the prophets which came before him, Mm -hmm. they believed in Christ and worshipped the Father in his name, and also we worship the Father in his name. And for this intent we keep the law of Moses, it pointing our souls to him. Now go down to the very bottom where he talks about it was accounted unto Abraham in the wilderness to be obedient unto the commands of God in offering up his son Isaac, which is a similitude of God and his only begotten son. So don't think that the Book of Mormon prophets are confused about the Godhead and who's God and who's the son of God and who's the father, who's the son. They're not confused. Jacob's making that very clear. But Nephi has no problem at all referring to Jesus Christ as God without having to always use the phrase Son of God. Hence, Mary becomes the mother of God after the manner of the flesh. There's something beautiful about that. But to reduce the confusion, Joseph changed it. Now detractors of the work would look at that and say, oh, see, you changed the Book of Mormon in a really significant way, so it can't be true. Brothers and sisters, I hope I hope you'll be able to understand looking back in – through the quarter of time at Joseph Smith, that you'll be able to to cloak yourself or, or clothe yourself with a cloak of charity, historical charity, and understand what's going on back here. Joseph's not changing it because he needs to change the doctrine. He's simply clarifying the text to remove confusion, and you'll notice he didn't change Mosiah chapter 15 where it leaves it in talking about Jesus as God. He didn't change that one, but he did change this one because this was the one that was causing more confusion among people as they were reading it. To the detractors, they see this as as evidence that the book can't be true, and to me, I see this as evidence that we had a prophet of God who was ordained and authorized with power and authority from God to bring forth the words of God and to teach the gospel of Jesus Christ and one of the means by doing that is bringing forth scripture and that's what's happening here. Now you'll notice uh, the next look in verse 19, he now sees the virgin bearing a child in her arms. How amazing that must have been for Nephi, 600 B.C. to see the Messiah in that little infant form being born by his mother in her arms. The God of the universe whose hand has created worlds without number, and now those little hands are little teeny-tiny hands. An insight from my good friend and colleague Sean Hopkins, he pointed out the fact that the word of God, who spoke and was able to do incredible creative acts in the universe, now became so vulnerable to take upon him our human condition that the word now no longer has any words at all. And those hands that created worlds without number, they no longer have control to do anything that he wants them to do. There's such a beautiful yet simple vulnerability going on in this vision of Nephi seeing Mary holding that little baby in her arms. It's hauntingly beautiful to consider the the reality of what the angel asked him. Knowest thou the condescension of God? Now he shows him. This is the condescension of God. Uh, He came down to the earth, took upon him flesh. Now look at verse 21, the angel said unto me, Behold the Lamb of God, even – now in the original it didn't say son of." This is one of those additional changes to clarify so the people aren't confused, but you understand from Nephi's context what he meant in the original form when he said, behold the Lamb of God, yea, even the eternal Father, who becomes this adoptive father for us. Knowest thou the meaning of the tree which thy father saw? Are you noticing what the angel's doing? Here's this, this baby who's come down, condescended, Now do you know the meaning of the tree? Are you making that that connection, Nephi? And his answer, verse 22, I answered and said, yea, it is the love of God which sheddeth itself abroad in the hearts of the children of men, wherefore it is the most desirable above all things. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. The meaning of the tree is this glorious news, this glad tidings of great joy that God is now with us. He has come down from heaven, he has condescended, and he has taken upon himself the human condition. He's with us. And then he goes through the different uh, stages of the Savior's ministry with these next looks, these next scene changes, and then in one of the last ones he sees the Lamb of God in verse 32, taken by the people, yea, the Son of the Everlasting God was judged of the world, and I saw and bear record. And I Nephi saw that He was lifted up upon the cross and slain for the sins of the world. That had to be a shocking and a profoundly difficult experience for Nephi to witness on that mountain in 600 B.C. to see. This this Savior who was born, who has come with all these answers and performing all those miracles and this incredible ministry, and then to see him lifted up and slain and crucified, that vision right there is going to have an amazing impact on Nephi and the way he teaches for the rest of of our scriptures that we're going to cover with Nephi.
1: There's so much to unpack here. One verse is interesting, verse 35, chapter 11, where it's explained what the great and spacious building is. Look at this, it's the middle of the verse, behold the world and the wisdom thereof. Now we all live in the world and there are a lot of great ideas out there, but we may find ourselves replacing the wisdom of God with the wisdom of the world and we may unknowingly find ourselves in this great and spacious building. In fact, there's a warning here. Yea, behold, the house of Israel hath gathered together to fight against the twelve apostles of the Lamb. I find that sobering because I want to be part of the house of Israel, and so the warning here is that the wisdom I should be seeking is the wisdom of God and that wisdom comes in part through scriptures and through God's living prophets. Now, I may go find a lot of great ideas in the world, but if those ideas contradict the wisdom of God and then I go to God and his servants and say, you guys need to repent and get in line with me and the world, I have joined the great and spacious. I have fulfilled what's being said here of the house of Israel gathering together to fight against the Twelve Apostles of the Lamb. So the invitation for all of us is to make sure that the wisdom that we are founded on is God's wisdom, which is so clearly expressed in the scriptures and in God's living day prophets.
0: So as we jump into chapter 12, you'll notice the scene changes drastically from – from the scenes regarding Christ's life to now, you could label chapter 12 the Nephite Lamanite scenes, and remember there are two of them here, two looks. The first scene change takes you from Nephi's time down to the period in 3rd and 4th Nephi where he sees his posterity and, and the posterity of his brethren, the Lamanites, and their, their struggles through all these chapters. And then the second scene change takes you from 4th Nephi at the end all the way down to the end of the book where Mormon gives you that great destruction uh, – the description of the destruction of the Nephite nation. That had to be painful for Nephi. Envision to see what happens in this sweeping scope of history down the road into the future. Once again, showing us the omnipresence of God and His ability to make these things known unto Nephi, the prophet in 600 B.C. time frame. Uh, then, in chapter 13, we shift gears. There's this is only one look. The entire chapter is one long scene. You could label this one uh, the the New World, so he's seeing all kinds of things describing what goes on in the New World. You get in verse 12, a man among the Gentiles who was separated from the seed of my brethren by the many waters, and the Spirit of God working upon that man. We don't know for sure, but it looks like this could be Columbus or some of those other early uh, explorers who come over to the new New world. Verse 13, consider the, the early pilgrims coming over. It came to pass that I beheld the Spirit of God that it wrought upon other Gentiles, and they went forth out of captivity upon the many waters. The captivity that they're leaving is this captivity of a uh, the, the church, the great and abominable church described in verse 4 and 5 and 6, they're getting away from that, coming to this land of freedom. And here, they experience these, these battles. Verse 16, it came to pass that I, Nephi, beheld that the Gentiles who had gone forth out of captivity did humble themselves before the Lord, and the power of the Lord was with them and I beheld that their mother Gentiles were gathered together upon the waters and upon the land also to battle against them." And against all odds, all of the various nations in the New World have to fight these these battles for independence from the mother countries of Europe back in the day, these revolutionary wars, and you'll notice verse 18, the power of God was with them. Verse 19, I, Nephi, beheld that the Gentiles that had gone out of captivity were delivered by the power of God out of the hands of all other nations. And then he describes a book in verse 20, and the, the angel asks him, do you know the meaning of the book? And Nephi just says in verse 22, I, I know not. This time he doesn't say what he does know, he just says, I, I don't know. There's nothing wrong with saying I don't know when you don't know. In fact, there's a lot right about that. And then he describes this in 23, behold, it proceedeth out of the mouth of a Jew, and I Nephi beheld it, and he said unto me, the book that thou beholdest is a record of the Jews. This this Bible, it's the story of the Jewish people, and it's brought forth, and he talks about how there were plain and precious truths that are taken away in verse uh, 26, 27, 28 and 29, how these plain and precious things are taken out of the record of the Jews. Hence, as you turn the page over, you're seeing that Nephi is shown, verse 39, after it had come forth unto them, I beheld other books which came forth by the power of the Lamb from the Gentiles unto them, the scattered Israel and the descendants of his brothers. That They have other books that come and the records of the prophets and the twelve apostles of the Lamb are true is what is taught in those other books. You could see the, the power of the Book of Mormon, the Doctrine and Covenants, the Pearl of the Great Price, and other books that come forth to establish the truth of the Holy Bible. Notice verse 40, the angel spake unto me, saying, these last records which thou hast seen among the Gentiles shall establish the truth of the first they're not in competition with the Bible. They're supporting and sustaining and upholding the Bible and the claims that the Bible makes that Jesus is the Christ. Notice how verse 40 ends, that these shall make known the plain and precious things which have been taken away from them, and shall make known to all kindreds, tongues, and people that the Lamb of God is the Son of the Eternal Father and the Savior of the world, and that all men must come unto him, or they cannot be saved. It's pretty straightforward the role of the Book of Mormon and other scriptures and other books that will yet come forth. It's to establish the truth of the first. The first one to bear that testimony was the record of the Jews, and uh, it's important to not put those two in competition. And then we go to chapter 14. You have two scene changes, and this chapter talks about the latter-day churches and how they're – going to be wrestling for the truth, so to speak, and proclaiming uh, their messages. Look at verse 10. He said unto me, Behold, there are saved two churches only, the one is the church of the Lamb of God, and the other is the church of the devil. Wherefore, whoso belongeth not to the church of the Lamb of God, belongeth to that great church, which is the mother of abominations, and she is the whore of all the earth. To clarify, there's a beautiful cross-reference you can put right there next to that verse that will take you over to, to Nephi's brother, Jacob, who clarifies what that might mean for us. 2nd Nephi chapter 10 verse 16. Listen to how Jacob uh, describes what that, that uh, other church represents. Wherefore, he that fighteth against Zion, both Jew and Gentile, both bond and free, both male and female, shall perish. For they are they who are the whore of all the earth. For they who are not for me are against me, saith our God." That's just one prophetic clarification of, of seeing these two churches. President Dallin H. Oaks, uh, a few years ago up at Brigham Young University. Idaho gave a devotional address called uh, Witnesses of God where he he picks up on this theme and I love his clarity. I love the, the simplicity of how he describes this. He says that there are two churches, those who believe in God and seek to serve him according to their best understanding and those who reject the existence of God. It fits perfectly with Jacob's description and I like that because that allows us to now go and, and work with people of faith in other in other religions and see them as part of the Church of the Lamb, and our message to them is, bring all the good that you have and see if we can add to it. We're confident that we can, uh, to borrow President Hinckley's phrase. Then he, he finishes with a whole series of descriptions of the Church of the Lamb of God in verse 12, 13, 14 and the saints and the twelve apostles and the book that's going to come forth and he is seeing all these amazing uh, visions but then we're told right towards the end of chapter 14 that he isn't allowed to write all of them down um, for us, for our day. Notice in verse 25 he says, but the things which thou shalt see hereafter thou shalt not write, for the Lord God hath ordained the apostle of the Lamb of God that he should write them. And you get his name down in verse 27, the name of the apostle is John. So the book of Revelation is is John's description here of, of his panoptic vision, his vision of all. And you're told in 26 that others who have come before Nephi have also written them down. We know at least one of them being the brother of Jared uh, who who has this vision and writes it down and Moroni seals, seals it up based on what he tells us in the book of Ether. So Nephi has had this amazing experience, comes down off of this mountain peak of astronomical revelation, comes back into the camp of Father Lehi and what's the first thing that he sees? Chapter 15 verse 2, came to pass that I beheld my brethren, and they were disputing one with another concerning the things which my father had spoken unto them. Do you see the contrast? Lehi teaches this family some things and Nephi chose to go to the Lord to find out what does this all mean and I, I desire to see and hear and know and understand these things. Laman and Lemuel chose to turn to each other to try to make sense of what their dad spoke, and they end up disputing, contending, arguing one with another about what it meant. And verse 4, Nephi was so grieved by this, his afflictions are great, it's it's as if he said, I've got to go and rest because these incredible spiritual experiences are physically exhausting, there seemed to be that element there. Look at verse six. It came to pass that after I had received strength, I spake unto my brethren, desiring to know them the cause of their disputations, and they said, "We we don't understand. What did Dad mean by by the natural branches of the olive, olive trees or tree and the Gentiles? They're they're confused. Look at Nephi's knee jerk response. Have ye inquired of the Lord? And they said unto me, We have not." For the Lord maketh no such thing known unto us." Brothers and sisters, do you remember the pattern at the beginning? I desired to know and believing that the Lord was able to make them known unto me as I sat pondering in my heart, I was carried away into an exceedingly high mountain. They desire to know. Step one, check but they don't believe that God is able to make these things known unto them. They're looking at Nephi with this confused expression probably of, why would you ask us such a silly question? God doesn't tell us those kinds of things, so why would we bother asking him? I love that he, his response is, how is it that you do not keep the commandments of the Lord? How is it that you will perish because of the hardness of your hearts? Do you not remember the things which the Lord has said? If you will not harden your heart and ask me in faith, believing that ye shall receive with diligence in keeping my commandments, surely these things shall be made known unto you." And then he spends the rest of the chapter trying to shore up their faith to believe in God and to turn to God and to trust that there's a God in heaven who actually loves them and wants to reveal the the truths to them that they desire to have in ways that they'll be able to understand and apply in their life. And he's – he's answering a lot of their questions and he, he comes down through all of this experience, look how he describes it in 25, wherefore I Nephi did exhort them to give heed unto the word of the Lord, yea, I did exhort them with all the energies of my soul, and with all the faculty which I possessed, that they would give heed to the word of God, and remember to keep his commandments always in all things. Do any of you notice the irony of what's happening here? Nephi just came down off of a mountain where he was shown all things, especially what we've covered there from chapter 11, 12, 13, and 14. He has seen the future of his seed and the seed of Laman and Lemuel and what happens through the next thousand years. He's seen Jesus be born and be carried by Mary and he's seen him raised up and slain for the sins of the world. He – he has this incredible vision and what is his solution? It's not to share all of the big huge stuff with Laman and Lemuel. What is he sharing with them? Have more faith, keep the commandments, repent of your sins, pray, turn to him and ask desiring to know and believing that you can answer. He brings all of that huge panoptic vision down to where the the boots are on the ground to say, Laman and Lemuel, you can do this. You can do this. You can move forward. You can take another step forward in faith. And he describes more of the elements from the dream of Lehi there and helps them see the symbolic nature referring to the physical nature. Look at verse 32. It came to pass that I said unto them that it was a representation of things both temporal and spiritual, for the day should come that they must be judged of their works, even the works which were done by the temporal body in their days of probation. In closing, brothers and sisters, it would be wonderful if we could all have Nephi's and John the the apostle and the brother of Jared's panoptic vision, but isn't it amazing that God has given us what we do need in the scriptures and then he's given us the added immeasurable blessing of having living prophets, seers, and revelators to guide us so we don't have to turn to the internet to find out about things like when is the second coming going to be, how much food storage should I should I have, what kind of, uh, of hobbies should I take up. We can live our life and move forward with agency seeking God's will for us, turning to him with things that really matter, trusting that he'll give us answers as we desire to know, as we believe that he's able to make them known unto us, and as we sit pondering, and as we take time set aside to ponder the words of prophets, both living and from the past, and revelation will flow. That's his promise, and I know it's true. And we leave that with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Please know that you're loved.
1: In this week's Gospel Explorer, there is a lot going on. On the left side we explore the
0: intricacies of lehi's dream this will enhance your knowledge of the meaning and symbolism of the vision you will also find deeper connections of lehi's dream to your lives
1: the next pathway will take you into a study of the power of prophets in our lives they are the
0: watchmen on the tower and they can see what we cannot the third path discusses the two churches in the latter days the church of the lamb and the church of the devil lastly you can take the fourth pathway and dive into a study of seeking truth in your lives. We hope that this encourages you to dig deeper in your personal study of the Scriptures and draw closer to the Savior.